Hello and welcome to episode 376 of the Fabulous Pelton Cast, sponsored by our friends at Pagliacci Pizza. I'm your co-host, Kevin Pelton. And I'm Tristan Carasino. And we are coming to you from Renton, Washington, home of the Super Bowl 48 champion Seattle Seahawks. Is there a really big 76? It's the Dwayne Brown edition? I thought Steve Hutchinson was 76, but I could be remembering that wrong without having opened my uh, Jersey Numbers spreadsheet. I kind of figured you were going to mention this, but I did, still didn't open the spreadsheet. Uh, by the way, last week was 375. No, ignore what I said at the start of the podcast. It what did actually, you say? I said 74 because that's what I had in the notes, but it was actually 75. Look, we were on location. Oh, yeah, you were on location. <laughs> yeah. uh, Dwayne Brown, though, am I right about that one? Is he on your list? Uh, I don't know if he's... Like, Steve Hutchinson, that's a big one. He, Russell Okung. Just a lot of offensive linemen wearing number seven. Jermaine Effetti. I mean, those are some pretty notable offensive linemen. Did you pull up the pro football reference list? Yes. So yeah. you, you confirmed all of those? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it was like the Seahawks left tackle wore 76 for a long stretch of time, even though it was multiple different people. I mean... Steve Hutchinson was not their left tackle. Sure, but I mean, from Russell Okung through Dwayne Brown, Dwayne Brown yes. it was a long period of time. I only have Hutchinson in here and Benji Olsen. Oh, there we go from the Huskies. Of it's course. kind of it's like kind of the offensive line number, in my opinion. Seventy-one to me is always going to be the offensive because of Walt line. Jones. Yeah, I still think seventy-six just like it's is the like first overall, of this. like. When you think of an offensive lineman, you're like, yeah, 76, that's the number. It'd be a good question to go through all of the like the, the numbers and which has the most Hall of Famers and things like that. 76, I feel like you're less likely to see a defensive lineman number 76, whereas you do see defensive lineman number 71, like Danny Shelton with the that's Huskies, who's also in my spreadsheet here. <laughs> so that may be a factor in it. But next week. Wow, so this is... Uh, uh, uh... Added value is that the is that the term approximate, approximate value yeah. from Pro Football Reference? Dwayne Brown is the number three seventy six of all time. Really? After Steve Wisniewski and Orlando Pace. Did Steve Hutchinson not wear seventy six elsewhere, or did he just not have as much AV as? I don't think he played for that long. Two thousand one to two thousand eleven. True. So I think I think it was just ah, there really are not. I mean Orlando Brown obviously one of the best offensive linemen of all time, but and Steve Wisniewski, but. Not as many of the great offensive linemen as I would have imagined. I bet if you go to 71, you're getting more Hall of Famers. Okay. Hutch appears to wear 76 in Minnesota, but not when he subsequently played for the Tennessee Titans, which was information of which I was not. I kind of remember that. 71, we've got Jason Peters, Walt Jones, number two, Willie Anderson, Trent Williams. It's definitely not that much better. Okay. All right. Well, we'll we'll continue researching this. Uh, this has been Let's Remember Some Offensive Lightman, <laughs> the podcast <laughs> segment. Uh, 78, you've got Bruce Smith, not an offensive lineman. And famously not an offensive lineman. Anthony Munoz, Bruce Armstrong, Jackie Slater. Like, I don't, maybe there isn't a number on the offensive line that's the number. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Carry on. <laughs> <laughs> well, we will, in fact, carry on. We've got lots to get to. The Mariners are on fire, and Los Bomberos are not going to put this one out. They are going to fan the flames in this particular case uh, with their heat. Uh, obviously, we have to get to a thrilling Seafarer Sunday. Yes. But we start this week 
with a combination search for Seattle's best IPA, although this is technically not eligible, and a toast all in one. Because we are drinking for the second time on this podcast, but the first time is we are searching for Seattle's best IPA from our friends at Rubens Brews, the Interbay IPA. Clean and crisp with a hoppy kick, Interbay IPA is a beer that soccer supporters can enjoy all season long up the bridges, and the bridges are way up, all the way up in this particular uh, tortured analogy, because we are toasting to Ballard FC claiming the USL2 championship with a 2-1 win Saturday at Starfire Stadium over Lionsbridge FC. Yes! Always hit at Lionsbridge Woo! FC. Yes! And a goal in the third minute of second half stoppage time from Peter Kingston. The dramatic finish came with both teams at 10 men after a red card in the 84th minute for Ballard FC followed the Lionsbridge equalizing goal in the 80th minute down a man due to a pair of first wow. half yellow cards. With this win, Ballard qualifies for the 2024 U.S. Open Cup. It is hypothetically possible Whoa. that Ballard FC could face the Sounders. They'd have Let's to win a lot of rounds first. Get it! <laughs> but Ballard FC, awesome when you said this is the beer for soccer fans, I had to pause for a second. But then I realized, because I was like... Because you were like, what are we toasting to when it comes yeah. to soccer, men's professional Se- soccer Seattle, in city? Internationally. Well, women's anyway. professional soccer in the city, we've got something to... It's not a, technically in the toast, but... I didn't expect it to be Ballard, though. And that is soccer that I can get behind. Do you know where Lions Bridge FC plays their home games? I know that they are in Virginia. There you go. Wow. How did you know that? I did the research last <laughs> okay. week. Newport News, compri- oh. the, based on the Virginia Peninsula, which comprises the cities of, I'm going to try to pronounce these, Newport oh, no. News, Hampton, York and James City Counties, and Pokwesson. That, that was the only tricky one. There. Yeah, I know. That was the one that I was trying. Got. Newport News is like famously, like that area is the P- largest. Pekowson, it looks like maybe. That is famously like the largest metropolitan region in the country without a major pro sports team, right? Well, there you go. I like that you looked back to me for that information. <laughs> yeah. Because I clicked on the Lions Bridge <laughs> FC Wikipedia page. Does, does it mention that? The fifth most popular city in Virginia? I'm not sure if I agree with that. With Wikipedia, I agree with. No, no, no. With your assessment, I don't know if I agree with. Newport News itself is not necessarily that large. I'm just saying like that entire area... Like, Virginia Beach is actually the big city in there, I think, okay. if I recall correctly. So, Well, I've done a lot of slandering of things, of cities, colleges around the country that I know absolutely nothing oh, about. Oh, wow. And my goal is to not do that for at least one week. So <laughs> I'm going to... I'm gonna leave Newport News and the uh, uh, the whole region alone right now. It's a until later on the podcast. Newport News year resolution. Yeah, Virginia Beach is the largest city in Virginia. So there you go. Wow, Take there that. we go. Yeah, I don't know who's taking that. Richmond, <laughs> Norfolk. <laughs> I don't. I mean, no offense to any of these cities. Apparently, it's, <laughs> they are all very fine places. I'm sure it's called the Hampton Roads Metropolitan Region, is what it's known as. Let's see, what's the combined population here? 1.8 million. So, like, they're big enough to have an NBA team. Okay. I tried to get one at one point, but hopefully they will not be getting an expansion team. But that's not well, what we're Well, for the fine today. people of the Hampton Roads region in Virginia, I know nothing about you, and therefore I'm not going to make any statements about you culturally. Uh, Michael Vick is from Newport News, right? Well, great. A fine, yeah. fine football player. Uh, 
So I'm saying nothing about you, Newport News. <laughs> wow, this is a troubling direction for fun. <laughs> the slandering of random <laughs> things that I know nothing about is a good direction for the pod. You're like, things were so much better. <laughs> it's an entertaining direction. I'm not gonna I'm not, I don't know if I'm gonna say it's a good direction, but it's an entertaining direction. <laughs> so much better when you're like Anyways. Again. Fuck you, Newport News. <laughs> oh no, no. <laughs> up the bridges. Up the bridges. All, right. all the all the way up. Fully Fully uh, up. Uh, old beer news. Did you oh. see this today? That Red Hook and Oregon-based Ten Barrel in Widmer are among seven brewers being sold by Anheuser-Busch InBev to Canadian cannabis product company Tilray, which had some smaller uh, breweries previously, but they are no longer part of the Anheuser-Busch empire. Wow. So they went all the way down south and sold them to Canadian cannabis product <laughs> Tilray? Yes. Well done. <laughs> I... This we have entered a strange time for uh, legacy breweries. I, I, I mean, it's weird because like for a long period of time, the strange time, the the legacy breweries that were getting snapped up were you know Rainier in Olympia and things like that. This is next and now gen. It's, yeah, we've yeah. moved to the next generation of that. This is I I will say that is not news I expected to see on here. Elysian. I was apparently more ready for news about Ballard FC than I was about this. Uh. Elysian still remains owned by AB and Bev. Okay. So that has not changed. This they is going to be follow their... our, our cannabis product company is such a hilarious way to describe <laughs> that. <laughs> That's a pulled it straight from the Seattle Times article. <laughs> <laughs> our cannabis product company is going to start owning things pretty soon because imagine the cash that they're bringing in, right? So did you see that by the way, this, this billboard, I, <laughs> I posted it on Instagram, this billboard along fourth Avenue as I was walking back to my car tonight. Oh, Oh, that's the can canazone. I had did not literally. It took me way too long to understand what canazone was. I just assumed. I read it as canazone. A... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I was like, I don't know what they serve there, but I like it. <laughs> it sounds like a fine baseball it's player. A, it's Italian themed <laughs> cannabis. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> but if they don't get, it's all strains that involved. make you talk with your hands more. <laughs> Uh, the they make veal well parmigiana done. taste really, really good. <laughs> oh, man. You can eat more of it. It sounds great, just, if we're being honest. No, yeah. This is actually maybe a genius idea. Wait. <laughs> oh, no, Take that not, out of the podcast. No, that is too good. No. Take that out of the podcast. That can't be. <laughs> Leave the Newport News good. slander in there. Take take this part out. Oh, boy. Copywriting this idea. It's the <laughs> Look, they're already called Canazone, but we're going to put an accent over the E. <laughs> I don't think that there is an accent <laughs> in Italian for that use we, of ease. We have to differentiate somehow because <laughs> it's the exact same name. We're just buying out their company and rebranding We're it Italian-themed. <laughs> They're also a weed company, though. They have the same amount of money as we have <laughs> oh, no. No. in this, in this so, scenario. <laughs> so they need to buy some beer, some breweries <laughs> first. Then we'll have enough. Oh, boy. All right, well. Italian-themed weed company, Canazone. <laughs> Let's get into it. Congrats. There we go. To J. Michael Kelly, who won both the Gold Cup and clinched the season high points driver and team championships with his victory in Sunday's final heat at Seafair in the U8 Beacon Electric. Now, that's Maple Valley Zone, or is that Covington? I'm crediting Kent. Because Kent? that's where he grew up. Okay. But he does now reside in Maple Valley. Okay. Uh, Corey Peabody, who entered the final race, is the leader. 
in high points, his teammate in the U9 Beacon Plumbing, Beacon Electric and Beacon Plumbing, he resides in Covington. Okay. That's who you must be thinking of. You got to keep your... Uh, Lives in Bonnie Lake. Went to KM, Kent Meridian. Okay. Okay. I don't. That might be a rival of Kent Ridge. I'm not aware. Yes, they're definitely I'm, a rival of Kent Ridge. Uh, look, I, I haven't gotten into the... My children don't go to Kent High Schools yet. I hope they never do, if we're being honest. But if that's well, one place I can slander, because I know Kent. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> Uh, that's well, something I know about Luke thank go- you Luke is going to West Seattle High School right yeah absolutely yeah. he's going to be living with his uncle that's a cool high school I was walking around it the other night were you West Seattle High School yeah it's a little creepy for a 40 year old man to be walking around a high school but you know it's not the school year. it was a <laughs> Sunday night at 10 feet totally up. normal <laughs> anyway thanks for scouting it for him <laughs> you're keeping your basement open Actually, you're upstairs. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> the spare bedroom is open for when a 13-year-old moves in with you. We'll see. I'll give you a solid we'll see on that one. So driving in lane two, Kelly passed Andrew Tate in the U91 Goodman Real Estate in the first turn of the third lap wow. of the five-lap final and pulled away from there. Yeah. Very unusual to have a lead change at that point in the final. And I got to tell you, at the start, it seemed like Andrew Tate had just completely nailed it. He was the really? first boat there at the start well ahead of the two boats inside of him, including, so lane one was the U1 home street with Dylan Runney, who was eventually disqualified for going under 80 80 miles an hour in the milling period before the race, (laughs) but was well out of it before that. Uh, And Kelly just, in an unusual situation, kind of had the straightaway speed over Tate and had the inside lane, and that was enough to make up the difference. Was that something that you knew was coming as the race was going on, or no? Because there was, there was like you know, it would kind of alternate depending on who came out of turns. Well, there was one turn where it looked like Kelly was dead even, and then there was another where it looked like Tate had opened up the lead a little bit. So it was kind of surprising when Kelly came out of that turn ahead and just drove away from there wow so were you thrilled while watching this i was thrilled it was it was actually some tremendous racing on sunday in particular really back and forth some drag races to the finish line there was one race that was so close i think this was heat 3a i could not tell from the shore really who had won really it was only are you sure you were watching hydroplane racing i am i am sure i was in not even in 1993 i'm shocked it was in 2023 was 1993 actually closer there was a lot of competitive bouts. Okay. Uh, so this is uh, for Kelly, the Kent native, his third consecutive Seafair win, fifth overall, his second Gold Cup victory, and second time winning the driver's title, having previously won it but not the team title in 2021 when Jimmy Shane split time in the cockpit for the winning Miss Home Street with Jeff Bernard. Uh, as I said, Kelly entered Sunday behind his teammate and childhood friend Corey Peabody in the U9, which was perfect in heats finish this season through Saturday, won the first two heats at Seafair that they were in before finishing third in Sunday's Heat 3A. In the final, they got stuck outside in lane four and finished third again in that race. So wow. a little disappointed for Peabody, but as he noted, he's also GM of the team, put the team together. So he gets a share in, in J. Michael Kelly's win as well. That's not great. This is like people complaining about basketball and AAU where they're like the players are all friends. They don't actually hate each other. This is like he literally gets part of the championship. It would be like yeah. if, if LeBron James also owned the Nuggets. Well, it would be it would be much worse if we didn't have the two teams of two boats each and we just had six boats. Racing. I understand that. And the reality is LeBron James is an agent who also is going to own an NBA team. So 
Allegedly. <laughs> who but, might have affiliation with a company who represent players on many different basketball teams. <laughs> it was a great time at Seafair. Uh, the The weather was not quite ideal, but it also was not super hot. So that, that was not so bad. It, the sun came out kind of just in time for the final heat and then for the Blue Angels on Sunday. And... Uh, had a perfect day on Friday before it was, cl- and the rain largely held off on Saturday, so it wasn't wasn't bad at all. Had a great time out of Lake Washington all weekend. Would you say that we're back? We we have never been so back. Wow. Okay. No, I I don't know. If that's actually the case, but <laughs> that's what people say now, right? We've never been so back. We could not be more back. I think is is generally the thing that they say. Uh, also this week, a congrats to longtime Seattle Times reporter Larry Stone, who will retire in November. Stone joined the Times in 1996 after beginning his career in 1979 at the Yakima Herald Republic and was named a columnist in 2013. So a terrific career from Larry Stone. It's been uh, nice to get to know him a little bit these last few years as a columnist since he's been covering the storm since beforehand. It was pretty much all baseball for him, which is you know certainly where we first came to, to know his work. Uh, lastly this week... Congrats to the listener, Tyler and Lexi, on their wedding last Friday. It looked like a great time. So, uh, and uh, we did get we did get a DM on Instagram asking for food recommendations on the honeymoon in LA. So, oh, honey, the honeymoon is in LA. Yeah, hopefully okay. that's going well. All right, with that, I think it's time for your favorite segment. Don't burn yourself. We got Mariners hot takes coming at you. You know you heard about this run here first on the Pelton Cast. Six wins in a row, two games out of the wild card, and the only real contender left for that slot. This has been an incredible, gutsy turnaround in a season where the Mariners have suffered some of the worst luck. But there's one thing missing. The 2023 season really needs a catchphrase. Oh. At the risk of being suspended by the Orioles broadcast, this season started out pretty brutally and lasted that way until just before the All-Star break. But don't look now. That's what these Mariners are. Robbie Ray out for the year? Don't look now. Every transaction is a bust? Don't look now. Three starting pitchers making their major league debut? Don't look now. Kellenic breaking his foot at the worst time? Don't look now. That's what these 2023 Seattle Mariners are. These are the don't look now Mariners. And for all the times I've given up hope this season, and it happened a lot, all of a sudden, it's almost mid-August, and the Mariners are must-see TV. They're more fun than they've ever been. A ragtag bunch of amazing Julio catches, rookie pitchers, new Italians, And Tom Murphy? And if you can't get behind that, then don't bother to look now. Wow. You have done it, sir. This has got to catch on. It is perfect. We do need a catchphrase. Uh, And you you did call it last week. Don't look now. It was the perfect time for that. The series in Anaheim was incredible. Thursday night, didn't see any of the first eight innings of the game. Uh... I'm walking along the street to a bar and uh, with a group, 
And we happened to see in a different bar window the Grand Slam by Cade Barlow in the ninth inning. That was so incredible. I mean, like, you're kind of there and just being like, yeah, the season's probably over. Like, the Mariners were at this point. I don't think we're quite there now because of the wins. But they were at, teetering at this point where it's like, if they lose a game or two. I mean, it was a loser leaves town series against the Angels. The Angels left town. We'll see if Shohei left town as well. And then Cade fucking Marlowe <laughs> with the grand slam, right? Because the, the inning started off good. You're like, wow, I think they're actually going to do this. They're going to score these runs. And all of a sudden, there's two outs and Cade Marlowe's at the plate. I think maybe even two strikes. And then he cranks one and I'm like, ah, he flew out. And then you see the ball just carrying and carrying. And this kind of kept happening in the series. And over the fence, like, I went freaking nuts when that happened. That felt like that was... We were inching towards some of those moments previously, too, right? There was the Colton Wong homer in the Minnesota series, I think it was. Maybe it was Boston. We'll always have that one Colton Wong homer. It was like Colton Wong homer to give the Mariners the lead, and then they blew the save. This was a time where even the difference of two weeks, the Mariners now are not blowing these games. This isn't they go up by one run, then they give up a run, then they lose in extra innings. Right. This is Kane Marlowe hits a grand slam, and they shut the door. And they did that all weekend. I mean, against the Angels. I don't know if you were thinking this way, but every game, I'm like, oh, please don't let them blow the save so that everyone can have the narrative about they traded Paul Seawald and now the bullpen is blowing games. And it hasn't. They... <laughs> there was a, a, a loud bark. Loud bark. Here. They traded Paul Seawald, their closer, and guess what happened after that? Don't look now. <laughs> but this bullpen is on fire. I mean, they basically haven't given up a run since they traded Paul Seawald. I mean, it's not going to continue forever, but the farther away they get from it, the more success they get away from it, the better it's going to be uh, when that eventually happens. According to Alex Mayer of Mariners PR, the first Mariners player with a go-ahead Grand Slam in the ninth inning or later with the team trailing since Richie Sexton on September wow. 19th, 2005 at Toronto. It's actually kind of more recent than you would think it might be. It's a pretty rare situation to go from down to ahead on a Grand Slam specifically in the ninth inning or in extra innings. Would you like to guess, I said this on the broadcast, I don't know if you heard this. I, I think I might have, I think I remember everybody, but maybe not. The four starters for the Mariners, the last time that they had a four-game sweep against the Angels in Anaheim. All right, I'm going to guess Jamie Moyer was involved. Yes, this was 2000. I think I told you this on the phone, didn't I? Did you? I don't Maybe know. Maybe I was asking I, I may Luka. not have paid attention. It was 2005. Is that too late for the Chief? Was Freddie Garcia still on the team at that He's point? He's not one of them. Okay. 2005. We're quickly running low on my memory of Mariners starting pitchers from that era. Uh, yeah, because like Aaron Seeley wouldn't still have been around by that point, would nope. he? Uh, I guess Felix was up by that point, right? Was not one of the pitchers, though. All right, I, I think you got me on this one. Uh, Joel Pinero. <laughs> oh, nice. Gilmesh. Wait, really? In 2005? Wow. I am shocked by that. Who was the last one? There was, oh, God, there's one that I'm forgetting now. Uh, I want to look this up. Hold on. Well, why don't we look up the 2005 Mariners and see if we can at least get some candidates here? It, it was a pretty pretty fun list of... Uh, Let's remember some guys. Yeah. 
We haven't really talked about grids, crossover grid on the pod, which is just basically let's remember some guys in game. Oh, format. yes. Ryan Franklin. No hit Ryan Franklin. Was the okay, last there one, you yes. Go. Wow. Yeah, that, that checks out. Aaron Seeley was on the team that year, but was not part of the uh, that winning streak, apparently. Those were the f- top four four pitchers in terms of games started for the Mariners. Who won those those four games? Yep. I mean, the team was, yeah, Joel Pinero, Jamie Moyer, Ryan Franklin, and Gilmesh. Those are definitely some guys for the Mariners. <laughs> I mean, yeah, so I think of those guys much more 90s in some ways than, even though Gilmesh I don't think debuted until 2000, but... Uh, oh, 99 was when he came up. First year of Safeco Field, I believe. Was this Felix's rookie year? Yeah. Okay, so but he wasn't up yet, maybe. Probably not at that point of the season. It looks like his first win happened in August. So Fangraphs currently has the Mariners at 31% to make the playoffs. Is that updated? That is updated with tonight's result. Angels at 2.2%. Uh, we we got to talk about Tuesday's game though, since we were both there. The fabulous Pelton brothers were there in person. Wow. to see the two nothing win the over first the first time since opening day. We're two and zero this year. We are. And let me tell you who else was there. Everybody else in Seattle. A shocking number of people on a Tuesday night against the Padres. Like I walked in and was like, "Why is every? Why are these lines so long?" No, it was we went, kind of absurd. It was like the Friday night that we went last year. It was. I mean that that was that one was completely full. That was a fireworks night where they were. I think that was the first. But like game. the concession stands didn't seem that much emptier. Well, it turns out like I went to the eventually went to the pen uh, before the top of the seventh inning and. That was deserted. It turned out really? it was just right field it was super slammed for some reason. Huh. I don't know which, which is where we walked in. So I walked. You called me with an extra ticket for this game at six fifty four p.m. <laughs> that was the time exactly. I have it on my phone. Fourteen minutes after the first pitch, uh, I then made it to the seat by seven thirty five p.m., which I think was a pretty impressive. Oh yeah, no, you got man. there really quick. I, when you called me, I was like, oh wow, you're there already in yeah. the seat. We had to wait in line to get in for a long time. That I did not have to wait, thankfully, coming when I did. So I'm walking in in right field after that, through that entrance, and I have a direct line of sight. I hear the crack of the, the bat off of Fernando Tatis Jr.'s bat, and it's going way up there. And then I see it coming down, and I'm like, Julio's going to the fence, but I'm like, there's no way he's going to be able to catch that. There's no way. And then I hear a loud cheer from the crowd, but I don't see the ball get thrown back in. I don't see any of the things you would normally see after a catch. And it turns out that I was fooled like everybody else. There we go. By Julio and his uh, his trick on everyone, basically, after robbing that home run. I mean, this was freaking awesome. There's so many things in baseball where you're like, there's been billions of plays in baseball that have happened. And over time, you're like, I've probably seen every outcome that can happen. And then you see something like this. Well, we saw two new outcomes tonight. Because we also score, saw a run-scoring pitch clock violation. That was very nice. Bases loaded full count. But you see a play like this. Julio makes the catch, comes back, acts like he didn't make the catch, doesn't celebrate. Tatis is like rounding the bases in the, in the replay. Like he thinks for sure he's hit a home run. It's pretty awesome. It's one of those moments where it's like, we're going to be seeing this for years to come. And just happen to be there at this game. Like this is a signature play for oh, Julio Rodriguez. 100%. I mean, you think about... 
Griffey and the Spider-Man catch and, you know, his his home run robbing catches, which were, I guess he he was able to do that at home. In right field, you couldn't do it at that point because the wall was so high with the, the was he at the out-of-town scoreboard there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But in center field, you could do it. But I feel like a lot of those were also on the road for Griffey. But yeah, but like this what, is right there. What we were seeing, you mentioned the Spider-Man catch. Yeah. This was a canon event. Oh, wow. Well that, done. That we saw for Julio Rodriguez, for this Mariners team. And to have it happen right in front of us sitting in center field was pretty incredible. And then just the game that he had overall. Like, Julio was out there. This This was... They call it the no-fly zone. Julio's been a very good defender in center field, but also he's he's been a little bit questionable in some plays. Tonight was truly no-fly zone when, territory. When did he start it. flashing up the X for the no-fly zone, though? Uh, I love it. It's great. Just, like, celebrating with the crowd, makes a good play, like, turns back, looks at the center field the, crowd. The relationship between Julio and the crowd in the bleachers, in the outfield bleachers, is, like, it's, it's top-notch already. It's going to be hard to beat that. Uh, weirdly, by the way, it was Taylor Trammell who had the canon event of having a broken hammock bone. So I, I don't know if he's also a part of the Ken Griffey Jr. Uh, uh, legacy or the Ken Griffey Jr. verse, I guess, in this case. I don't know how long we're... But, and then a thrilling finish to this one. Mariners up 2 nothing in the ninth. Padres' leadoff batter gets on. And then you've got this set of... Uh, Tatis, Soto, Machado coming up all with a chance to tie the game with a home run is the tying run at played at the bat. And Andres Munoz gets through it in impressive fashion. Yeah. I mean, six in a row. I think... The, the one thing I can't tell is like how much of the crowd was really just a result of the excitement around that. Oh, the, those tickets sold late. It was like good weather... Yeah. It was the team being good. School isn't out yet. Like, it was kind of an easy game to go to in a lot of ways. There were cheap tickets available. I do have one complaint. What's that? Mariners games, when they're good, I don't mean to sound like an old man, should be attended by approximately 6,000 people. (laughs) You should be able to roll into whatever seat you want Walk up to any concession stand you want with not a soul in sight. You should have a giant dome on top of you. You should have no (laughs) idea what time of day it is unless you happen to go to the ramp outside. That is what baseball is. Fans, I don't agree with this. Having to wait in lines to get into a Monday Monday night? Tuesday. Tuesday night? Look, you made the same mistake. You you might need to investigate a calendar around here. (laughs) Into a Tuesday night baseball game? The NL? No. <laughs> All of well, these things. Look, it's traditional rival, the Padres. <laughs> these things the better confuse and confound me seeing these things. But what is great about baseball is being able to roll in the day of the game, having no one around. So that that was my biggest complaint with this, was the other fans being there. That That is completely fair. You, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Your comment just reminded me of... There was one year, you're, do you remember this, where so the Blue Angels weren't allowed for a period of time to fly over Lake Washington due to FAA concerns about the, the, like, the boats that were in the water, basically. 
Okay. So instead they performed over Elliott Bay instead of Lake Washington. And there was one year we were at a Mariners game simultaneous to the Blue Angels performing there. Really? And like watching them from the ramps. I don't remember that. So there were no Mariners games to see a Blue Angels fly over last weekend, sadly. But they did get it at the OL Rain game on Sunday as well as... Seahawks practice always gets it. It is pretty fun. Being being somewhere else and the Blue Angels flying over is always pretty fun. Not as good as being there while the Blue Angels are flying, but it's a close second. If you've got to work, uh, preferably the Blue Angels can fly o- over there. Uh, the Mariners are now 2-1 and one on the season. They have assured at least a split of the Vetter Cup with the San Diego Padres entering Wednesday night's finale of the season series. One thing we have not confirmed... The Bitter Cup, I think, is still is imaginary. I don't think it actually exists. But if it does exist, you better be able to drink out of it. Uh huh. That's the thing that we haven't confirmed. Okay. <laughs> is the actual cup of the Vetter Cup? I was going to say all cups are imaginary. What do you mean? <laughs> no. I guess some cups do exist. <laughs> <laughs> the Gold Cup exists. It's just not. It, it's questionable whether it's a cup. You could pour liquid through it but you can't drink specifically out of the APBA gold cup so do you think written on the Vetter cup is just some gibberish that seems like words (laughs) (laughs) uh i here interesting this does appear to be a photo of a Vetter cup i don't know if that's real or not uh that would not be that would that would not be a cup you could drink out of so we're going to need more more research on this one and on, on the greater Newport News area. Oh, we don't need any more info. <clears throat> we just know there are fine people there. This seems to be real, the Vetter Cup. You Stop. think it's actually presented to one of the teams I, and it's in the locker room? I mean, that's what it seems like here. I, it, <laughs> that's a really impressive Photoshop if that's not a real photo of a cup with the Padres of Mariners logo okay. on it. Okay, all right. <laughs> so we'll put that in the post notes, obviously. Uh, so the bad news for the Mariners on Tuesday was that Brian Wu was placed on the IL with a forearm strain. Uh, GM Justin Hollander emphasized to media pregame that this was largely precautionary, that he was feeling a little more soreness than usual coming out of the, uh, the start over the weekend in Anaheim. Uh, he will be replaced in the rotation by 2020 number six overall pick Emerson Han- Hancock, who was at AA Arkansas. Hancock was rated the Mariners' number four prospect by MLB.com. He's age 24, uh, was 11 and five with a 4.5 ERA at Arkansas. But I think the Mariners felt better about his performance, probably than that that statistical record indicates. And Hancock, what the expectation was, he was going to get called up at some point here maybe to take some starts off of the plate of Brian Wu and Bryce Miller because of the fact that their workload is so much beyond what they've experienced before in the minor leagues. So we could see whether it's a six-man starting rotation or Wu moving out of the starting rotation when he returns. I don't think this is necessarily that Hancock's just up for the couple of weeks that Wu is on the injured list. I mean, we'll see how he pitches. Of course. It's it's an absurdly young rotation. You say point. you said three major. That, this league was debuts. the third one that I was referring to. Well, okay, I guess Easton McGee technically wasn't a major league debut. It was the first major league start. I Easton I was McGee. talking about Hancock, Brian Wu, and Bryce Miller. Okay, and to have three pitchers come straight from Double A to making their debut with the Mariners and be ensconced in the rotation this young is it's a pretty strange thing that the Mariners are dealing with and be contenders. Bryce Miller with ten strikeouts on Sunday. 
Logan Gilbert did him one better on Tuesday with 11, or two better. No, he, he ended 12. up with 12. And only gave high. up one hit. Yeah. No, it, it was a, a dominant performance. It was a tremendous performance by Logan Gilbert, aided, of course, by that Julio Rodriguez catch. Yeah, he had some good defense behind him. Yeah. All right, let's get into the roundup, starting with a brief bit of Sounders news. Ugh. Obviously, they remain off for it a extended promised no time Sounders this week. With the League's Cup, but we did learn that Stefan Fry replaced, has replaced Nico Ladero as team captain midseason. An unusual switch uh, with Fry's sideline for the most recent Leagues Cup competition at, uh, match after, against Monterey after a finger surgery. Joel Paolo took the armband for that one. So we'll see if that turns things around. <laughs> yeah, that's what usually changes things. What they need is an all players meeting. <laughs> Have they considered a slogan? <laughs> I mean, no, you do the all players meeting first. Then you get the slogan, okay. and that carries you through to a wild card round loss. <laughs> it's tried and true. <laughs> it's tried and true. Uh, happier news for Oil Rain, who clinched the top spot in the NWSL Challenge Cup, entering the semifinals with a scoreless draw Sunday against Portland. Uh, the other two division leaders both lost their matches Saturday, meaning the Reign entered that match on Sunday, knowing any result would be enough. They completed the six-game Challenge Cup group stage without conceding a single goal as Laurel Ivory recorded her third clean sheet, matching teammate Claudia Dickey for the most by any goalkeeper. Uh, Katie Lund of Racing Louisville also had three. The Reign will host Louisville in the Challenge Cup semifinals on Wednesday, September 6th, with a chance to host the final to be played that Saturday if that advanced, if they advance. That, if that happened at Lumen Field, that would be the day before the Seahawks host the Rams to open the NFL regular season. Okay. Are you aware of... I mentioned the Orioles story. Are you aware of the story? Of course. It's, okay. I've been many times. It's been all over it. Has she? Yeah. Uh, so the Orioles this season, on their socials, Named a player King Felix, as if there was not another pitcher named King Felix in the league recently. Posted their fun differential. Literally just, I mean, I, look, I don't mean to say that Scott Service is the first ever person to use the term fun differential, but. Uh, he might be, I don't know. The Mariners have kind of, kind of coined that one, right? Yeah. King Felix Hernandez is King Felix. It's not for a fucking reliever. Right? Yeah. You gotta earn that nickname. All of the the suspending or firing of their broadcaster for I watched the whole clip and I was just like, I'm waiting for him to say something bad. Right? It was ridiculous. And then they turn around. This is Kevin Brown. Kevin Brown. Yes. He seemed pretty great to me from that description. Or from from his uh intra. It's like, oh Kevin Brown's on it. Yeah. They turn around and they try to get goodwill on social media. Not try. This is obviously scheduled beforehand. But they get goodwill on indie rock social media. Turnstile throwing out the, the first pitch of the game. And I say, some people who are in the know, in the scene, feel like Turnstile's been claiming Washington, D.C., a larger market, a little bit more than wow. Baltimore. Oh, so I don't think you could just come to Baltimore, a city that I now feel strongly about, Drop in every once in a while, claim DC, play your big shows there, and then all of a sudden come back and throw out the first pitch at an Orioles game. Have fun at the Nationals game, okay? You can't like bo both Go-Go and Pit Beef. This right here this weekend, this series, Felix Hernandez Hall of Fame series, the real King Felix against the Baltimore Orioles. This time, it's personal. 
That was all great. I don't know why it came in the middle of the OL raid segment. <laughs> Sometimes your best work comes at unexpected times. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> don't know what about the OL raid tw- triggered that. Uh, well, so they will be off this weekend. <laughs> and you know who else will be off this weekend? Who's that? U.S. Women's National there Team. There we go. Back home after losing in the round of 16. It's the first time in the World Cup they have failed to advance to the semifinals. The three-time, two-time reigning champions. I've forgotten how many how many consecutive times they've won it here. Uh, I think the last two. And truly a shocking result. I, w- I watched this one on DV. I did not stay up until two in the morning. But you, I, you managed to avoid seeing who won? I, I mean, I woke up and immediately put it on the DVR. I didn't do anything else. So other than look at the forecast, which thankfully the forecast did not spoil the result of this one. And the USWNT, for as frustrating as their play was throughout this tournament, and really I would say that they lost by finishing second in their group, by drawing with Netherlands, by only scoring uh, three goals against Vietnam. That that was where they lost this, by having to play Sweden in the round of 16 instead of much later in the tournament. They could, they did not, would not, it turns out, as it turns out, have played Italy because Italy managed to lose in heartbreaking fashion on a goal, South Africa goal in, I don't know if it was quite in stoppage time in the second half, but close to stoppage time in the second half, but they only needed a draw to advance. Uh, but that would have been a much more f- friendly matchup for the U.S. But after all that, the USWNT actually dominated play throughout this match against Sweden, just constantly, uh, you know, firing shots on goal, but none of them go in as often happens in soccer. And then in the shootout, the most shocking result, Megan Rapino missing with a chance to give the USWNT a commanding lead. Wait, really? In the shootout. You didn't, you're unaware of this? No, I knew that she missed. I didn't know the context though. Well, they were up three, two, I think at that point. How did she miss? What type of miss was it? Just like missed the goal or got blocked over the bar. Yeah. All three misses. They had three consecutive misses starting with Rapino and, all three of them, none of them were on frame. There were there were no saves for Sweden on the penalties. And then a, a shocking way to lose also with Alyssa Nair seemingly having saved the final shot only for it to have landed like a millimeter over the line for a goal as was confirmed by goal line technology. So. Yeah. It seems like a lot of people were quite upset about this, looking for blame. And I think it seems like it's an older squad. Well, it's a transition squad because you've got, you know, this group that had been part of the last two, whether it's, you know, Rapino obviously in a different role uh, off the bench. She actually she actually got to play in the in this match against Sweden uh, after Vladko Angnowski was not using his his bench nearly at all in the first in the group stage and still he saved two of his substitutions, you know, Rapino and Lynn Williams, I think were the only two substitutions until they brought on two players for penalties, including Kelly O'Hara who ended up missing hers was the final shot for the USWNT. Uh, but you've got kind of that group and O'Hara fits into that. Julie Ertz who've been part of this long Alex Morgan who've been part of this long run of dominant success for the USWNT in their case, all back through the loss to Japan and in the final. Uh, but then you've also got this younger generation that's kind of stepping into these larger roles, whether it's Sophia Smith or, or Trinity Rodman 
uh, uh, Naomi Germo was terrific throughout this tournament on the back line. She was a big reason the defense was as strong as it was. And that's the group that's going to have to take over going forward. I mean, this is probably... So the U.S. has won half of the Women's World Cups that have ever happened. Did right? you look that up? I mean, I think as far as I can tell, there have been eight and the U.S. has won four. Yes. So that's a lot of them. Yeah. And I think this might be slightly more of a sign. When, when one team is dominating internationally that much, it's probably bad for the sport overall. Agreed. And so... I mean, the interesting thing is they've dominated much more in the World Cup than the Olympics. I don't remember when the last time was they won the Olympics, but it's a long period of time. This is probably good. This is probably a sign that the sport is getting stronger everywhere throughout the world. I think, and this World Cup has been tremendous from that standpoint. If you look at the success of teams from Africa, uh, I believe Morocco advanced to the to the knockout stages in addition to South Africa. So, you know, this is the first time they've gone to 32 for the Women's World Cup, and that's very much been kind of validated and and rewarded thus far. Yeah. So I'm, I'm choosing to take this as a positive long term. And also you just every once in a while you're like, I, the cheering for the U.S., it feels a little uncomfortable. <laughs> the cheering for the U.S. when they're completely dominant, yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, okay. Like, I, we don't we don't need to do that. Yeah, Nigeria also advanced. So you had three African teams in the in the knockout stages. All of them did lose in the round of 16. So you've got a fairly European-heavy quarterfinals with Spain, Netherlands, Sweden, France, England all in there, along with Australia, Japan, and Colombia. Yeah, just as long as England doesn't win, it'll be great. <laughs> That's the important thing for you, as long as it doesn't come home. <laughs> I, don't I know mean, if, you, I don't if, know if, if England the wins, they'll be celebrating this for the next 60 years. It'll I'm, be 2,200 well, until they stop celebrating this. <laughs> they they did win the Euro last year. I don't know if you're aware of that. The the British women? Yes. Okay, that's fine. On home soil. I'm okay with that. That the It came home back then. So, so the good news of that is when, when they're in next play, they're going to have the uh, the full contingent of their USWNTers back back on the back on American soil. All right, Seattle Storm. After losing Tuesday afternoon to Connecticut, a the first game I attended today as part of the day night doubleheader uh, with the Mariners game. Now two and thirteen at home, five and eight on the road this season. Uh, they lost to. Dallas and Connecticut, two of the league's top four teams at home in the last week. But in between those games, came from behind in the second half to beat Phoenix on the road. Uh, A couple of factors in that home road split. They've had a slightly harder home schedule. Uh, They are 3-0 against the Mercury this season. Two of those three have been on the road, whereas two of three of their games against both Las Vegas and Connecticut, two of the league's three best teams, have come at home. And then the other factor is this new starting lineup that is 3-3 three and three with Sammy Whitcomb at point guard. Gabby Williams at small forward has played four of those six games on the road. And we didn't even get a full game from Gabby Williams today as she uh, suffered an ankle, rolled her ankle, uh, has not officially been diagnosed with an ankle sprain by the team yet, but uh, rolled her ankle late in the first half, did not return, didn't really get an update from Noel Quinn post game. So we'll see if she's back. Uh, they will continue that four game, a four-game homestand by hosting Atlanta on Thursday and Phoenix in, on Sunday, going for the head-to-head series sweep. Are you up sports? Is this when we're talking about everything? Yes. Okay. The emergency pod we recorded last Friday. UW 
to the Big Ten. Uh, that was kind of our emotional first take, but we wanted to dig a little bit deeper into this this time. Yeah, I think it makes sense. I mean, I guess are there are there any further thoughts about college football realignment? I mean, there's been news recently that Cal and Stanford are in serious talks with the ACC. Yeah, until we see for sure that they land in the where they land, I think it'll be tough to say. Is your expectation still that the Pac-12 or the Pacific Coast Conference in some capacity will continue to exist after next year or after this year? It certainly seemed me a lot less likely. I mean, for that branding to disappear still makes no sense to me and that history to disappear. Like it, the Mountain West, even if, you know, the new conference is governed by the existing Mountain West leadership, including their commissioner, Gloria Navarez, who was previously in the Pac-12 League office uh, before going to the WCC and, and eventually the Mountain West. Like, even if that's in charge, and even if the most of the schools in it are from the Mountain West, like, the Pac-12 or whatever, you know, Pac-X brand still has so much more value than the Mountain West brand. It doesn't make sense to not use that to me. But I guess I, I all, all, everything is on the table now. Okay. You saw the report today from CBS Sports that San Diego State was trying to con- create a conference out of the best teams in the Mountain West, the Pac-4, and the best teams in the American did okay. See that, but that apparently was rejected by the other Mountain West teams. So. I just like the idea that San Diego State thinks they're the one. <laughs> <laughs> Look, someone's got to be aggressive. I, I no, I like it. They're just like <laughs> you know who should step up to fix this, San Diego State. Uh, I mean, I think that it is funny that San Diego State is like the second tier linchpin school. Look, they did play in the men's basketball national championship game. But I'm four I'm months ago. So sorry to tell you about men's basketball. Uh, I have some I'm horrible aware. news for you about men's basketball. You know, they had Marshall Falk once upon a time. Yeah, Marshall Falk and Rashad Penny. Look, we know we can all we can all talk about the great history of San Diego State. But I just love like they probably should be a, a I guess power four school. <laughs> that really isn't a five anymore. Uh they should be a power five school. Probably, but like, and they probably will eventually be one, but I just love the idea that they were like, look, Stanford is there, right? Stanford, Marshall Falk and Rashad Penny is not exactly John Elway, right? Andrew Luck, Jim Harbaugh. Stanford has history with a capital H. Also, they have education, like what Stanford has to offer. I was thinking about this today where it's like, I get it. Look, they don't have fans. People don't watch their games. Makes sense. Least engaged fans. You know what base. the weird thing was? Did you see like there was that list going around of like the most watched teams in the Pac-12? And Stanford was on Stanford, it? I think, was pretty high. <laughs> look, I, look, I will always have feelings. I'm, I am happy to not be playing Stanford every single year. That is not something that I mourn. They are kind I think of. We can't entirely rule out that they end up in the Big Ten at like a huge revenue cut. We can't rule that out. No, I'm not going to rule it out. I think that it's pretty unlikely at this point. It doesn't though. seem There's likely to me. There's been no steam for it all. I, I think what is most likely, and, and the reports that Notre Dame has no interest in the Big Ten either, is like, yes. look, if we're looking far enough out 40, 50 years, Big Ten, like Notre Dame probably will end up in the Big Ten eventually. I don't know. Maybe they're going to. Maybe they'll end up in the SEC. I don't think that Stanford is as enticing to them as people think. I think the only way to get Notre Dame to the Big Ten, if they really wanted to have this fight, and NBC is also a TV partner of the Big Ten, so I don't think they do, is if every Big Ten school basically they just blacklisted Notre Dame. Notre Dame yeah. and, and if they lose USC, if they lose Michigan, if they lose Michigan State, like that all of a sudden becomes an 
issue. Yeah. But it's something that, again, because of NBC being a partner in the Big Ten's football uh, media rights and Notre Dame's, I would just be really surprised if and if Big Ten poked that bear. Yeah. And also, like, it benefits everybody for them to play each other. It would benefit them more if Notre Dame was in the Big Ten, but it benefits everybody by still playing those games. Uh, so that aside, on a local standpoint, the newsiest bit was uh, UW Athletic Director Jen Cohen being asked on Sunday on a Zoom whether the Apple Cup would be played in Pullman every other year. Uh, as part of the answer, she said, we're still working out on the complexities of our football schedule in general for the future years. Pat, Pat, the WSA Athletic Director, Pat Chun, and I will continue to work on the best plan to play the Apple Cup every year. And obviously, this is something we all want. I think I saw a post. Well, is is being played in alternating in Seattle and Pullman what we all want? I. It would feel kind of bad for it to be in in Seattle every single year. I mean, the majority of Wazoo's fan base is in is in Seattle now. I mean, it changes the equation a little bit. Like when they were talking about playing it at Lumen previously, that was in the context of being played Thanksgiving weekend every year. Uh-huh. Which it might not be anymore, but when a lot of WSU's current students and alumni are in Seattle for the holidays, I'm definitely fine with that. If if that's, I mean, clearly we're fine with it. But it, but if that is the if that's the end negotiation, and UW is not willing to travel to Pullman or whatever, but they're still going to play the game, and it's on a neutral site, tickets wise, every year. Yeah, I mean, it would be 100 like when Colorado and Colorado State played every year at Mile High or whatever, whatever sponsors. It would probably be like 65-35 UW to Wazoo fans. I mean, we saw it once. It was technically a UW home game that year, but it was, it was a fun atmosphere when they played that game. At and Lumen. it could change whose season tickets it was under. Correct. So if it was under the Wazoo season tickets, they'd have their 8,000 ticket holders. Um, and then... You've got more than that. <laughs> that's a joke. Uh, you, you we're in the you, Big Ten now. I get a few of these. Say what you want about Newport News. <laughs> Again, places to this podcast. I understand. Uh, the thing to me that I thought was wild coming out of this was people, you said you didn't see this from Wazoo fans, and I felt like I did. I don't know. Being like, oh, well, now we'll never beat UW after this. Just be like, they're going to be making $50 million in the Big Ten, and we'll make $5 million in the Mountain West. There's no way we'll ever win this game. Right? That was my fake Wazoo voice. Internet commenter. Internet commenter Wazoo voice. That could have been and way meaner. And the idea that a team from a smaller conference cannot beat a team from a larger conference because of money disparities is so wild to me that the idea that these two teams will be so far separated because of the money that is coming into each institution. It's like nobody could ever imagine Boise State beating a Power 5 team. That never happens. So seeing these excuses being made, the playing field is more or less going to be the same. Everybody's still going to be recruiting. What is the difference for UW ultimately going to be with the TV money? Not that much as far as what it means on the field. And for Wazoo, what is it going to mean? Maybe the facilities are slightly different over a long period of time. The facilities are already different. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Like, they're not, we're not operating on level playing field just because the TV money is the same. And look, I think UW is leading the all-time series, right? Yeah. But 
I don't think it's going to change that drastically after this. If Wazoo is a good coach and a good program and they're building something, they're still going to be doing that, whether they're in the big fucking 10, the remainder of the Pac-12, the Mountain West, whatever. The UW has lost. Do you remember BYU? I remember playing BYU. UW went 0-12 in the Pac-12 one year. They sure did. It is not like these people. We're one in eleven. Another so year in the past consumed two decades too. by what conference teams are in and thinking that's going to change things. If tomorrow, right, Rutgers has been in the Big Ten, you would never be like Wazoo couldn't beat any Big Ten team. They're playing Purdue this week, right? It's like so fucking bonkers to just assume that the money that is coming in from conferences is going to change the on the field product that much. I mean, look, I've been told repeatedly by you the best path to success is to be in a small conference and beat up on your competition. Oh, absolutely it is. <laughs> I don't I'm know if I buy that. I, I'm happy that UW is in the Big Ten or going to the Big Ten. I'm happy about this outcome. Do I think that this is going to fundamentally change the program? All of a sudden, it's going to be Ohio State, Penn State, Michigan, UW. No. No, no. no like, I don't think any. I mean, there are some UW fans who think that, but... They are going to be at the same place that they were before. Look, we all know where the program is. They're probably about the 20th best program in the country. And they might have some years where they're better. There have been a couple of years where they were better than that. Yep. And there were a couple of years where they were worse. But I can look through the fucking schedule and see that Ohio State was not 0-12 within the last two decades. Not even Michigan was 0-12. Not even under Rich Rodriguez. So, But what these things come down to ultimately is who's your coach. I think having UW having the money to be able to retain and, and being in the Big Ten, if they were in a, a siloed Pac-12 or whatever, Kalen DeBoer might be gone, right? I could see that happening. It would happening. be a greater risk. Like, they, they will have the money to continue to pay the coaches if they need to, and they will be able to attract the coaches because they'll be playing on the same playing field. At the same time, if I don't, where's Kalen DeBoer? He's from South Dakota, right? So I don't know if there's like an obvious school or whatever. But if Michigan came calling, if Jim Harbaugh leaves and Michigan comes calling for Kalen DeBoer, I don't think he's going to be like, well, I'm already in the Big Ten. There is a difference between these programs. I believe what you're saying is there's levels to this shit. Yeah, there's levels to this shit. I, as same, I learned when I we went were, to go watch a game at Michigan. We were in the same conference as USC and Sark still left for USC. That is, that is true. That shit happens. I mean, that was his hometown, so it was a little, slightly different. There's there's no Big Ten school But you South understand Dakota. what I'm saying? People treat this as it's like so, yeah. so matter of fact. You're I, here, you're there. I think it's less. There are complexities. I think it's less about WSU fans making this comment than like the people on the outside. And I, I understand the tremendous disappointment and sadness about the Pac-12 breaking up and the loss of tradition. I, I feel that certainly myself i do think a lot of it is concern trolling oh yeah and also bitches hate nuance like <laughs> it's true that is that is the reality of this and there's a lot of nuance that's happening it's not just here there whatever like there is nuance to this between the conferences in 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 the actual conferences themselves within the organizations like it's not just going to be like uw is behemoth on the west all of a sudden, we own the West Coast because we're in the Big Ten. Because if you look at it, the schedule's getting a lot harder all of a sudden. Yeah. If if they're guaranteed games against their pod, instead of those guaranteed games being against having cows in there, having, I mean, Wazoo in there, Oregon State for the most part, all of a sudden it's USC, UCLA, and Oregon. If you imagine playing those three teams as your guaranteed games, it's a lot harder than it was before. Like UW Dogpan had a 
uh, fan survey to try to gauge people's opinions about the move to the Pac-12. And I found it really, or to the Big Ten. And I found it kind of hard to answer because a lot of the cases I was like, I don't really feel like either of these extremes. I'm somewhere even between your neutral option and your other one. You know, it was like, uh, uh, let's see here. What, what's a good example of what? Uh, like, what are your feelings on potentially having every conference home game given a 7.30 p.m. Pacific start time with this arrangement? And I voted for not thrilled but still worth it. But I think I feel more negative than not thrilled but still worth it, but certainly not as negative as canceling my tickets if this indeed comes to pass, which was the other option. But it's also, that's that's like such an extreme. Every single home game at 7.30 p.m., it's just not going to happen. It might. I can't rule that out. It's No, it's not going to happen. I will rule it out that every single home game is at 7.30 p.m. That I'm is not. not what this is about. There's going to be big games that are going to be important to have earlier. UW's going to play good teams from the Big Ten, and guess what? They're going to want those earlier. Yeah, especially if it's teams from the Eastern time. Yes. yes, they're not going to want if... You no, know, maybe all of the UW-USC, Oregon, UCLA games are at 7.30 p.m. Okay, so if the Big Ten... This was another thought that I had. If the Big Ten moves to a 10-game conference schedule, which we'll see if that happens, I think it is very likely the three seven seven model, right? You have your three teams that are protected... That are kind of like your pod or you whatever. You play them every year. Which would be Oregon, USC, UCLA. Makes sense. You play half of the teams on the road. Or you play half, ha- of, the half of the conference other every other year. So you play every team every other year. And you host every team every four years. Which is the way that you would guarantee that in over a four-year college career, everyone would play at every campus. And players never transfer. So that's important. <laughs> we just have to factor in one solid oh. four-year career. I mean, that's that's one of my big things is like the people like, oh, would someone think of the players and like, you know, whether it's players getting stuck at a lower division, you know, if they committed to Washington State and Oregon State thinking they were going to play in the Pac-12 and instead they're in the Mountain West, if that scenario comes to pass or the travel aspect. And it's like, you know, there's this, they don't, nobody has to stay there. You're, you're all allowed <laughs> to transfer now. Like, this this change isn't happening tomorrow. It's still happening in a year. They could transfer after this season. But so if they go to that model, right, there'd be two non-conference games, which does mean that you're probably looking at, like, I, I would assume if you have 10 Big Ten games, that's a fucking gauntlet that you're yeah. going to have to play. I think it is. So if you've got 10 Big Ten games and you're playing Washington State, yeah, like they, that's a pretty brutal schedule every year. And you have, well, I mean, UW's going to beat them 75-0, to zero, I've heard. But... And the, like, how do you ever play Oregon State in that model? Because I, I think you'd want to no, play Oregon State at some point. I mean, it gives the opportunity for only one non-conference game outside of that, and it's like, which would presumably be an FCS, school. like Portland State, right? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Portland State may end up in the Pac-12 at this rate. Who knows? You still have to play your Easterns in your Portland State occasionally, right? So it does. I think it. It is all. They're all brand new teams for the most part. Those extra seven that you're having per year. Like, there's a lot of history to build up with those seven teams or those 14 teams or whatever. But... I mean, certain of those teams, like, you've got the Rose Bowl history with. So, yeah, you but, know, but ultimately, Michigan in particular, you, like, walk Michigan in with a rival. that often. So it would be an interesting game. Because sometimes they game. bail on the game in Seattle. It would, it would be... They would be interesting games for quite a few years against those teams because they'd be pretty much brand new. But it does sort of limit the amount of teams you play. So if I'm doing my math correctly, UW would have to leave the West Coast either three or four times every year. Correct. Which when people are talking, and again, this is just football. We're going to talk about everybody else in a second. Yeah. But for just football, leaving the West Coast three or four times per year 
is not that bad. And one time, basically one time per year, depending on how it shook out, you'd have to go to the Eastern time zone. In in either Maryland or Rutgers. I mean, well, the East Coast, because some of these schools are in the Eastern time zone. I guess zone. Penn State is probably. Or maybe more are. I believe Michigan is in, in the Eastern time zone, okay. is it not? I don't know about that one. It's close. I know Detroit is. But but you have to... <laughs> well, Detroit is in Michigan. I know. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> so, I know that's in the So the whole state is... It's not like Indiana. Oh, the whole state is... Yes. Okay. So the other in the Eastern time zone. But... It's, so you're, you're traveling to the East Coast once, maybe twice per year. You're traveling to the Midwest once, maybe twice per year. Like, people are acting like this is going to radically change things. And I literally this last weekend or last two weekends flew on a flight to Chicago and flew on a flight to Denver. That is a big 10 city and a PAC 12 city formerly. And the flights were slightly different at no point. Was I like, wow, this would radically change how I played a college college football game. It was the difference of like maybe an hour. It's not that big of a fucking deal. I mean, that's one of the reasons that the big 10 makes more sense than, you know, like Stanford and Cal to the AAC is a little different ACC. because I'm sorry, the ACC. Yes, Stanford and Cal to the AAC <laughs> would be a tough beat. <laughs> tough beat. The people underestimate it's so it's interesting. So last week when we were on location with your youngest and oldest child, we were sorting out the youngest football guys by the teams that are closest geographically to Seattle. And it was continually surprising to them that the schools that were like farther east but north, more north, were closer than the schools that were farther west, but south, like Dallas versus Detroit. I don't, I don't yeah. know if that one specifically. I mean, that makes sense. But also, even like climate-wise, the difference between Seattle and most of the Midwestern or Eastern markets, climate-wise, is way more similar than it is going to fucking Arizona. Yeah. And we've had a hard time playing in Arizona. Yeah, I forget who it was who tweeted us about a Friday night in at Rutgers, which first off, the Huskies are one and zero. I was going to say we did that, right? Yeah, <laughs> been there, done was that. Was that week one? That was great, well, John. Who was had that, that one? Jake I think so. Browning's first start, maybe. No, his first start was at Syracuse in the Kibbe Dome. Oh, okay. Not the Kibbe Dome. The, uh, the he played <laughs> Bo- Boise Dome. State really early on. Are you sure that wasn't Boise State? Oh, I'm start? talking about Jake Locker. Jake, Jake Browning's first start was at Boise State. Yes. Sorry, I got my Jakes mixed up there. Who who quarterbacked the Rutgers game? Oh, I have no idea. On that, that was a one. while ago. You just played a lot of these teams. There was the one-off game against Illinois. That was in. That wasn't at their stadium, was I it? It was in Soldier at Soldier yeah. Field. Yes. Uh, so they managed to make the trip to Chicago, but it, they survived it. Right, like you look at these games, they played at Notre Dame and almost won at Notre Dame. Right, that was when they had all the goal line chances and yeah. didn't score. Yeah, uh, we're still, still too about soon. It. But like, it's the idea that this travel is going to affect them that much. And again, this is just football that I'm talking about. This is not everybody else. But there was. A I don't story. think it's a good thing. But again, I think a lot of the what someone thinks think of the children is concerned. Trolling. I would rather travel slightly farther and play in a neutral weather setting than play in Arizona. This is a huge difference. I understand it's colder, maybe, in some of the places in the Big Ten than it is. But, like, we just... We, it's been proven, right, with the history against the Arizona schools, yeah. how badly UW has played there. Like, it is a bigger advantage. 
I mean, I guess we have we don't have the history with the Big Ten schools yet, but haven't played, you know, Michigan in November. We have the facts of how it looks like to play against the Arizona schools in Arizona. The, so. the, the results are in. All right. Well, we wanted to break this down kind of in terms of the the travel impact. So let's start by talking about the sports that are at UW and in the Big Ten. Uh, UW has 20 sports currently. Football, men's and women's basketball, baseball, softball, men's and women's soccer, men's and women's tennis, men's and women's cross country, men's and women's track and field, men's and women's golf, men's and women's rowing, women's volleyball, women's beach volleyball, and women's gymnastics. Uh, These sports sponsored by the Big Ten that UW does not have. Women's field hockey, where nine of those teams currently participate. Men's gymnastics, which has just five teams. Uh, U.S. about men's ice hockey, seven of the Big Only Ten schools. seven? Yeah. Huh. Men's and women's lacrosse, uh, six and seven, respectively. Swimming and diving is where UW is going to be the outlier, having eliminated those programs, I think, not long, like maybe when I was in college or when pool? you were in college. It used to be in Heck Ed, in the back end, but they've renovated it. There's no longer a pool. Huh. Uh, men's and women's swimming and diving, uh, 10 men's teams, 13 women's teams in the Big Ten. And men's wrestling, which all 14 current Big Ten teams sponsor. The Pac-12 does not sponsor. None of the four Pac-12 programs that are entering have it. So, you think there's a chance that all four add it? Probably not, because it's, it's you'd have to add a women's program to offset the scholarships. And that's a lot of investment. I mean, maybe long-term, but I don't think imminently. Uh, there, there are two sports UW has that the Big Ten does not sponsor. Those are men's rowing, which there's a couple of schools that row as part of an Eastern coalition, basically, and then women's beach volleyball. Uh, all 14 Big Ten teams offer softball. I thought you'd be excited to wow. know that. Okay, so that's more than the, the... They are ahead of the Pac-12 on that count. Wow, okay, Pac-12. Uh, 13 of the 14 offer baseball. Wisconsin, the one exception to there. Who was it who doesn't have softball in the Pac-12? I, I don't want to look it up for the 18th time. Okay. Wisconsin doesn't offer baseball? Yeah. Just nine schools. Now will be 11 with UCLA and UW offer men's soccer. So if you break it down in terms of travel... There are seven sports that utilize travel partners, and I think those are going to be the places you're going to be most affected because I don't think the Big Ten has traditionally had that kind of schedule. You could play at home on a Thursday and on the road on a Saturday as opposed to in the Pac-12 where you were going to play both of those games either at home or on the road and alternate with your travel partner in UW's case, Washington State, against those other two teams. Do we think that's going to change? We'll see. I mean, so traditionally the Big Ten, the reason that would have been set up that way is all of the schools, when you look at it pre-Rutgers, pre-Maryland. Correct. Everybody's pretty freaking close. Yes. Geographically, way closer than the Pacific Coast Conference was. And not necessarily is in pods of two. I mean, that was a unique thing about the Pac-12 compared to every other conference is that everyone had kind of a natural rival geographically. Except those pods of two were different than we thought they were. What do you mean? Well, the pods that went to the Big Ten was but, UW and Oregon, not Wazoo. Sure, but I'm saying that like everybody had a natural rival. Even when they added Utah and Colorado as the two mountain schools, they made sense to travel together. Okay, but but so in the in the traditional old school Big Ten, travel was a lot closer than Seattle to Tucson or whatever. Correct. But again. Like there's there's not necessarily rhyme or reason to the Big Ten basketball schedule in terms of when you're home, when you're away, 
who you're playing in those two games. So you think that's something that they may move toward? Sure. I mean, I think they're they're realistic about the greater challenges about adding these four West Coast teams. So again, there are seven that utilize travel partners in the Pac-12. Men's and women's basketball, men's and women's soccer, men's and women's tennis, and then volleyball is the other one. There are four sports that travel once per week, so they'll have kind of similar impacts to what we're talking about in football. Uh, maybe a little more, I think, for some of the for baseball and softball because of the fact that you're playing weekend series. So if you're traveling back from the East Coast, you know, on a Sunday after those series are complete, you're potentially, you know, getting back much later than you were traveling back from anywhere on the West Coast. Uh, and then women's gymnastics is the other one that that use, uses that format. And then you have nine sports, nearly half of them travel only to meets. There really won't be much impact here. Uh, cross country and golf, they only have the Pac-12 championships are scheduled specifically against other Pac-12 teams. And that's also rowing, which I don't know exactly what they'll do because uh, they did did row often against Pac-12 opponents. And so you said there no, there's no Big 12 rowing programs. There is none. It's it's not sponsored. They, there are a couple of schools that do offer it. Just not under the Big Ten yes. umbrella. Do you think that's something that UW I, may split rowing off and still continue to... I think that is very possible. And play basically with what was the Pac-12? Probably, yeah. Do USC like and UCLA row? I don't think they do. Okay. They've got other sports instead. Uh, and then track and field and beach volleyball are the other two sports. I didn't even know UW had beach volleyball. It's a relatively new addition, and it's basically the same players as the volleyball team, but it's obviously slightly different format and rules. So so I'd say, again, it's about half the sports have limited impact, if any, and then you know the, the four sports that travel once a week, it's not an enormous hardship. It's really those seven sports that utilize travel partners where you're going to see a big hit. And so you, you think... Travel-wise, primarily, men's basketball, women's basketball, men's soccer, women's soccer, men's tennis, women's tennis, and then women's volleyball Yeah, are, are the sports that are going to see the biggest impact from that travel. Yes. How, how is the Big Ten generally? Can we go through some of these sports that we might not? I mean, even I'm curious, Big Ten men's basketball, right? Like, history-wise... Can we go through some of these sports and just talk about how the Big Ten is at these sports? I mean, I don't know this. I necessarily have a lot of data on all of these. I only looked up a couple of them. Okay. I mean, men's and women's basketball, uh, like men's basketball, the, the Big Ten is much better lately. They don't have the history that UCLA, they're adding the history of the UCLA. Has, <laughs> yeah. I guess now they do have it. Uh-huh. Uh, but, you know, they've had teams in the championship game regularly in, in recent years. They've got Indiana, and so that's got some pretty good tradition to it. Yeah, Indiana's kind of like sleeping giant of the Big Ten. Ohio State, Michigan, I mean, you know. Who's been in the championship game? Well, Michigan played there a couple of times under John Beeline. Interesting. Uh, Women's basketball is uh, coming off one of their strongest seasons with Iowa playing in the championship game. Ohio State also made the Elite Eight. Uh, Indiana was number one seed last year, so it'll be interesting because... You know, Pac-12, the Pac-12 has been very strong there. UW and USC are two of the programs that look to be on the rise in the Pac-12 and will presumably continue to be on the rise in the Big Ten. What about softball? Softball, 
This is huge come up for the Big Ten. Hello. The Big Ten has had just two Women's College World Series appearances in 2016, one each by Minnesota and Northwestern. Oregon, UCLA, and UW, all, all three of them made it together the Women's College World Series in both 2017 and 2018. Those three schools have combined for 11 appearances in the Women's College World Series since 2016. Five for UCLA, four for UW, two for Oregon. I mean, UCLA is arguably yeah, like maybe the third best college softball program in the country. I mean, historically, it's been the best. I mean, right now, Oklahoma is clearly the best. Yes. And I think Florida State maybe is... Florida State ended. has been been very strong recently. If let's say that long term Florida State ends up in the Big Ten, we don't know. Obviously, travel wise, that would be a little bit farther uh, than anything we're talking about. Yes, it would be like the best college softball conference, which would be wild for you know. Softball is so historically associated with the warm weather states. You'd have in in Oregon, kind of being exceptions to that by virtue of their proximity to the warm weather states, but. Uh, yeah, the Big Ten is in warm weather states as well. TV wise, obviously, you know it's football, men's, women's basketball. It's softball. Oh yeah, easily number four. Yeah, probably maybe even ahead of uh, women's basketball is the tournament no, that's think, bigger. Yeah, I mean they're both big, but I, I still think women's basketball is bigger. It is. It's kind of. I know that this all of this is happening is because of football. Yes. Right, but. Adding these softball programs to the Big Ten is kind of an unexpected boon for them. Yeah, it's a nice bonus. It's a cherry on top of, of the rest of it. That that's like that's where Stanford would have really added something. Not not softball specifically, uh, as they have not been as strong as UW and UCLA there. But in terms of like the you know the Honda Cup and the the Conference of Champions type of things, like if they had added Stanford, then they could start calling themselves the Conference of Champions. It would be pretty, it'd be like the Orioles calling Felix Batista King Felix. No, <laughs> I don't think so. And it would be even worse to just destroy the conference and then just be like, <laughs> We're, I'm the Conference of Champions now. <laughs> well, I think they're going to come up with something else that's not the Conference. I don't think of they're going to use that specifically. I'm just saying they would God. be. What would Bill Walton say? Look, uh, I mean, UCLA and Oregon are both in the Pac-12, in the Big Ten now. I I think they have added, as sad as Bill Walton is undoubtedly about the Pac-12's demise, I think they've they've managed to add Bill Walton unofficially now. He's He has to be in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they've bought Bill Walton. I mean, if you've got UCLA and Oregon, you've got Walton. Uh, so do you think it will be likely that UW, in the short term, long term, you never know, but in the short term, do you think there's any chance that they add any programs? I think in the short term, it's going to be very difficult receiving this partial share of TV revenue while having the increased travel expenses. I think maybe once you get to the full share of meteorites on the 2030 deal, then I think it's plausible. Once the once UW gets... Look, obviously, like we were having this conversation about the projections of what it could mean getting the full TV rights in 2030. And the answer has to be no one fucking knows. I, you I could, think we know it's going to be better than the PAC 12 scenario. No, I agree with that. You can project, but you can't say a number. No. And I think, but whatever the number is, it's going to be commensurate with what other programs are getting. It'll so. be commensurate with what other programs are getting. And it'll also be near the most of any conference in the country. 
So either those schools are cutting programs or UW will have the wherewithal to add to them because the, the Pac-12 schools are coming in with relatively low number of total programs relative to the Big Ten schools. Really? Yeah, not like the lowest, but relatively on the low side. Why do you think that is? Uh, I mean, I don't know. You know, I'd have to look at kind of the math of where that money is being spent because UW, like spending, athletic department spending... Is actually on the high side for the for the Big Ten. Really? Yeah. I saw that there was a list. The, of... the Wikipedia page has been updated with that one already. They're in there. Oh, uh, there we go. I love that. Yeah. Uh, there was a list of debt from programs. Um, Cal is by far the most. <laughs> it's kind of a yikes situation. Uh, but people were treating it as if having debt is a bad thing. And UW was like number ten, and Ohio State's like number eleven, and Michigan's in there. And it was kind of just like you're going to have debt and accrue debt because you're an elite program and you know that there's future money coming in yeah, and I mean, you're, you're spending that to compete with these other programs who are at that level. The bigger issue is if you're Cal and if you're Cal and you have debt and you're not in the big 10, that's more of an issue and you don't really have a viable like athletic program in the way that some of these other schools do. Don't really have that great facilities either. Look, I have no idea where the debt's coming from. Um, but people were treating it as if debt was a bad thing. And it was like, you can look at these schools and see that it's not a bad thing. It's just a thing. I mean, uh, a healthy level of debt is important for growth from a macroeconomic standpoint. Um, and then I guess the last piece is, let's say that we get to 2030. There's the UW's equal revenue share with the other schools in the Big Ten. This is assuming that everything is the same as it is now, which I think is not a safe assumption. But... It's all we can do. What does that money go towards? I think it's a variety of different things. I mean, it's facilities, it's coaching salaries. It could be in certain cases, like the number of scholarships you're offering. I think probably the quality of travel, like, you know, one of the ways that travel improves is typically within the PAC 12 footprint, the UW has been taking Alaska airlines flights. If they just take normal, like commercial Alaska Airlines flights. Or they charter. Uh, oftentimes, they are taking actual, you know, regularly scheduled Alaska Airlines flights. They're just going to the airport. As far as I'm aware, I mean, really? I, I could be wrong about that, but I think that's the case. I mean, some trips you're chartering, and certainly like football with the size of their travel party is chartering. Okay, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, for most programs, they're just football. It's not changing anything in terms of how they travel. Okay, that's already all set. Football but, is chartering pretty nice flights. Yeah. Okay. And that'll be the same. It would have been the same. It was the same in the Pac-12. It'll but, be the same in the Big You know, 10. if women's basketball is chartering to, you know, Maryland instead of trying to figure out the flight schedule for that, it oh, makes man. their life much easier. I've flown there in Alaska. It's not easy. Yeah. So, so it, it might in- increase amenities slightly for all the other programs. Yeah. Football is going to be generally protected. Do you think there's any place that we'll see an impact as fans? People act like things are going to be different. Aside from who the the teams, we know that we'll be playing different teams. I don't think you're going to see a dramatic impact, no. Besides that, in any sport. That and potentially the game times in football. You think they might be later? I, I, Again, I think that any of those games against the other West Coast teams are probably going to be in that late night window. Pac-12 was pushing it on the late night windows, though. Uh, yeah, I'm not saying. I, again, that was one of those things that people love to 
complain about Larry Scott about or the Pac-12. And it's like, well, you wanted the TV money and you wanted the exposure of being on the biggest networks. The trade-off for that is you're going to have late start times. Like, you got to pick one or the other. The Pac-10 picked one for a long period of time and the Pac-12 picked another and people disliked both options. They wanted option C, which was make all the money and don't play night games, Mm -hmm. which it turned out was not an option. Uh, This is, there's, obviously we don't know right now. My gut tells me that you double play slightly less late games. And when they are late, I think they will be slightly earlier. I don't think, because they were like 8 p.m. start times. Occasionally. I don't think there'll be 8 p.m. start times. I still think it is the I Big mean, if 10. you're creating four different windows and one of them is at 5 p.m. Pacific, then the fourth window is when it is. You're saying it's uh, like 11 a.m., 2 p.m., 5, 8 Nah, no, I think it's noon. I guess, yeah, I guess that's true. On the oh, on the West Coast, yeah, that's it's West Coast. Nine a.m., twelve thirty p.m. Why is five one of the times then? Because that's prime time. Yeah. So, I think you can have those games overlap. We'll see. You can have a five o'clock start time Pacific and a seven o'clock start time Pacific, and then people finish up the one game and then tune over to the other. But the Big Ten is still, it's a conference that is headquartered in the central time zone or the yes, eastern time zone? They're headquartered in so Chicago. Central. I don't believe they're technically in Chicago. I saw, saw where it was earlier, but what that city was has escaped me. There's going to be slightly less willingness to have a game start at 10 p.m. central. Especially so. because more often than not, they're going to be playing teams, aside from three games a year, against teams that are based in that time zone or further. Yes, I agree that that is a factor. And so you're going to have to... I just I think it is going to be better time-wise. Oh, yes. And Rosemont is the Chicago suburb there. But you understand what I'm saying? Like, Yes. If, if it's you, if I'm just saying those three games a year in particular. Maybe those three games. It's just not that many. And I still think if they're at 7, whatever, that's great. Have we ever had a problem with a 7 p.m. start time? 7 p.m. would be fine. Okay. Well, I'm fascinated to see how it all shakes out. I think these are obviously decisions that were made. There are conversations had with these sports and these programs. Ultimately, it was a football decision. And I'm sure that the input and feedback probably weren't weighed that heavily from the other departments. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see how, how things play out. And, you know, I think I saw a thing about there's an athletic story about what a horrible decision it was for Rutgers to join the Big Ten. And it didn't acknowledge that many of the other sports that weren't football have been very successful in They've the had a Big great Ten. run in men's basketball. Yeah, and that Rutgers has definitely gotten better in other aspects. And it's not just about football, that sometimes having the extra money and the extra exposure is important for everybody beyond strictly the football team. Well, the exposure element is also important probably relative to the Pac-12 deal that was being presented that was going to be, you know, perhaps strictly Apple TV. And that was something that Dr. Anna Marie Kausa, the UW president, cited as part of her decision-making, you know, as as far as going to the Big Ten. So, yeah, I don't think it was strictly a football decision in terms of, like, I, obviously the success of the, the health of the football program is driving a lot of the athletic department's health as a whole, but... 
this was this was a bigger decision from UW's leadership. It was not just a sports decision. And I think sometimes people are like, wow, these decisions were being made that fast. And like the Oregon regent who was on the golf course as they were voting. Yeah. Like that that was a thumbs up or thumbs down. That wasn't the actual decision. This is these conversations have been going on for a very long period of time since UCLA and UCA left. Oh yeah. Last August, I think, the conversation started immediately after that. It is documented that Oregon met with the Big Ten in Chicago and that UW met with the Big Ten in New York. And at that point, the Big Ten had everything that they needed to know about the institutions they had I don't, I don't, it's unclear to me what they needed to know about the institutions there, i feel like a lot of this information is publicly available there's still some conversations that you have i know look i don't know if you've read some comments from some presidents of universities these people know a lot less than you would think <laughs> how do we get those jobs i know the to arizona state i'll just be the president it'll be I, fine i i think i already like my job though <laughs> yeah you're fine me too. I was at Red Rocks last weekend. I'm good. Yeah, you had a, I didn't. I didn't need to fucking join the Big Twelve. This this was a decision that was made. It was the decision wasn't made, but the the parameters of the decision were known. Yes, but I'm saying that it was a decision that was made. It was the catalyst was football, but it was a decision that was made for the betterment of the entire institution. Both both the football programs. Football is probably the biggest marketing of every single college. It's the front door. And that's what Anna Marie Cause has to care the most about is still growing the prestige and the admissions to the university. Yeah. Right? And a university that is in look, Stanford I think can withstand it. Stanford's Stanford will be fine. Stanford is a Cal Cal will be fine as an academic institution. Cal is going to draw people who don't want to care about sports. I feel like Cal really should drop. I've, I've pitched this before. Cal should drop down to D3. I don't know what they're doing. We'll see. If they're in the ACC, Cal has been good. For what, though? For who? For what? To run up this debt? I don't know. But you could say that about anything. Like, literally, why is any school doing anything? What are I, we... Look, I agree. Like, one of the things <laughs> that I've been thinking about lately. I like that we get to the end of this long conversation. We're just like, but why is anybody doing this? And we're just like, I don't know. <laughs> just I, just because. Can I read back a quote from Fabulous Pelton quotes? Somebody earlier? else did it. <laughs> I mean, if USC did it, we might as well. Tristan, I'm at the forefront of understanding why things matter. Kevin, I love that you're going to be like an endowed <laughs> professor of understanding why things matter. Why things and all you're going to say do is say the darkness. The darkness, true. <laughs> that's why Cal. That's why Cal has sports because somebody else has sports and they're just like, well, we can't not have sports. That's it. That's where the conversation so ends. Back when Stanford they, has sports, so we need sports too. Back when this NIL conversation was first starting, <sighs> the Big Ten Commissioner Jim Delaney was like complaining about it and he was like, well, if that happens, we'll just go back to Division Three. And it was like, it reminded me of, I can't find what the specific account is on X anymore, but uh, there was an account called like Accidental Liberals, <laughs> yeah. where it was basically like conservative people saying, why don't we make college free for everyone? Yeah, yeah. It's like, yes, you've accidentally gotten to <laughs> yeah. the point that we yeah. wanted you to get to. So that that's what the Jim Delaney quote always reminds me. The other point I wanted to make before we get out of this and... We're now an hour and a half into the. I podcast. told you this would be a long conversation. We're talking about every single school transitioning to the Big Ten. I knew it would not be a short conversation. Well. And the self-aware wolves Reddit page. <laughs>
I, I just didn't know that we were going to talk that long about Newport News, Virginia. That's yeah, that's what we took up all the surprise. time. <laughs> Newport News, the fine people. A of lot Newport of people News. have said in the past week, like, why doesn't anyone think about the fans in college football realignment? And I got to say, like, I'm totally sympathetic to that argument in pro sports because the existence of pro sports, like, the only reason that pro sports ever started is to sell tickets to appeal to fans. But the reason college sports started was for the college students. Mm-hmm. The fans are kind of an accident. You can <laughs> say what, you can determine whether it was an unintended consequence or a happy accident, but the fans are an accident. This is just for like college students to run around and you know get exercise and the benefits <laughs> that accrue from playing in a team sports environment, hypothetically. So they should only be thinking about the players. They should not be thinking about the fans at one second in any point in these decisions. That's my hot take. The, the fans are an accident in college sports. You're, I mean, you're yes. totally right. You're like Doja Cat over here. <laughs> Wait, what? I'm not going to say I love my fans. I don't even know them. <laughs> Michael Penix. <laughs> uh, we do know and love the listener. It, it is kind of hilarious that people are talking, being a fan of a college. Like when you really, really think about it, the idea of not having gone to that college, Especially. but just being a fan of a college. And those are often <laughs> the most devoted yes. fans of the college. I'm, we're afraid for any particular jokes about the UW fan mess. They're just like, we, we, I can make those because I know it. <laughs> Yeah, you understand. That, that's totally fair. I mean, this Can was our imagine? dad who did not go to the University of Washington. It was the one thing he cared about more than anything was UW football. Can you imagine going to the classes and being a fan of the classes? <laughs> it's just like if you're a fan of the college in general. I'm, I want to be on the record that I'm not a fan of the college <laughs> just in general. Like, Psychology! Begrudgingly a fan of the, the sporting programs. Uh, no, it is, it is a very, very strange thing. To understand, especially like I, it's it's almost like I feel like this realignment talk turned into like culture wars, kind of, and that's kind of the the underlying. Uh-huh. Well, bit. it is a thing in America in two thousand twenty three. So. It's it's the very strange underlying bit of conference realignment, which I mean, if we're being honest, a lot of the states that are in the Midwest are not exactly blue states or whatever. You know, like the the, dom- the the college campuses are probably different yes. than the states as a whole. And I think that there was there was an underlying bit of that of like we can't be in the Big Twelve because of them. And I think that was a little bit of like that wasn't necessarily why. Anna Wait, Ray also, Cal- did you see by the way that quote that that? Uh, Can you take all nine of us? Yeah. yeah. No, not all nine of us. Yeah, everyone but Washington uh, yeah. State, Oregon yeah, State. I, I, this is like everybody knew. Look, the shit that happened. Everything that happened was exactly that what everybody was talking about on Reddit, on Twitter, fucking last August, last July. We had this conversation. We, we like, thought Stanford had a better chance of making it, and I, I, I was surprised by that to a degree. But we, we were like four corners to the Big 12, UW and Oregon to the Big 10. We'll see what happens with everybody else. I don't know if we necessarily said the Big 12. Oh, yeah. I don't know if it happened on the podcast. I'd have to review the tips. I've been deep in the internet, and what played out is exactly what everybody talked about. There were times where there were rumors about Stanford, where there was three Pac-12 teams to the Big Ten, UW, Stanford, and Oregon. But none of this was a surprise. Well, that's the other thing here. And and I do want to say, by the way, the thing that I was wrong about is I thought the UW, like, or the Washington State government 
would raise more of a fuss. You about. thought You'd the fucking California government State. would care. I told you straight up, like eh, they, they cared enough to at least hold a hold a hold meetings about it. There is a certain power dynamic within the Washington State government that is very UW focused, and they are going to make sure that what happens best for UW is going to happen. Does that make sense? But to your point about that, Kirk Schultz saying he was shocked by UW and Oregon leaving does not reflect as positively on Kirk Schultz as he thinks it does. Oh, is he the Wazoo athletic yes. director? Yeah, it's he's, just like he's the president, not the, the, pre- the president. Just, I just like dog. Like you can be surprised. You could have read the the same no, stories that we all did Friday morning. If I wasn't shocked. The president of a college should be shocked. <laughs> no. These the RCFB is available to everybody. <laughs> If Kirk Schultz, if he wants me I to bet, send him a I link. Bet, I bet Kirk Schultz has never even tracked a, a play in a flight away to see which coach I, is getting hired. He probably doesn't even have a burner Reddit account. <laughs> he puts his flair for another team just to talk shit to make him look bad. Yeah, like Very far afield. Kirk Schultz, this, all of this information, he could have gone, not even necessarily, you don't even need by the end to go on to Reddit or to random Twitter pages. You could have just followed some of the most prestigious journalists in the entire country and found out this information. He could have had a push notification <laughs> from Pete Thamel that came to his very phone that said that UW and Oregon were in serious negotiations with the Big Ten two days beforehand. Just install so it, the ESPN app, If bro. you're shocked, you're not trying to pay attention. It was like, whatever, have your head in the sand. But also, there's such a... Like, a, 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 a naivete to that it's almost cute right of being like well somebody told me in a meeting we're all gonna stick together every other report that i'm hearing doesn't say that but you know it would be cute if he wasn't paid as much as he is uh he's probably (laughs) he's not the highest paid employer definitely not because that's caitlin football (laughs) all right let's talk about actual UW sports for a second here uh UW men's basketball on tuesday announced their non-conference schedule which consists exclusively of games in Seattle, Washington, and Las Vegas, Nevada. Uh, the marquee matchup at Heckhead, aside from Gonzaga, is probably Nevada on Sunday, November 12th. It's already announced the Huskies will play in the Continental Tire main event at T-Mobile Arena the week before Thanksgiving, then will return on December 2nd to Las Vegas for a one-off game against Colorado State at the MGM Grand Garden Arena on Sunday, December... I've got second here, but that... that oh, yeah, no, yeah, that re- read it. Saturday, December 2nd. It just so happens to be the day after the Pac-12 football championship wow. game at Allegiant Stadium. So I don't know if they're planning like a weekend for Husky fans just in case they play in that final Pac-12 championship game. Huskies will host Gonzaga the following Saturday. And then the Sunday after that, December 17th, we'll play Seattle U at Climate Pledge Arena for the first time since Climate Pledge opened. It's kind of wild that they haven't played there yet. Yeah, the, uh, the, the last two years, the Seattle U games, despite... Uh, climate pledge pledge being open have been at Heckhead. Is there is there enough power in the Big Ten that we can force Gonzaga to play climate pledge every year? Probably have more fans than we would anyway. They they hundred percent would. This, I don't think so. That's the underlying bit. Sorry to talk conference alignment for one more second. I want Wazoo to be so fine. I want Oregon State to be fine. I want every school in the Pac twelve to be fine. But if there is any way. I might not want to get Cal to be fine. I don't. Sorry, Cal. I, I like Cal. I if like Cal. Just play day three. Everyone would be happier. If there is any way that conference realignment leads to UW having a better basketball program and crushing Gonzaga, 
that will be the best possible outcome. Even if it is an unintended outcome of all of this. Yeah, it would certainly if be an unintended UW outcome. being in the Big Ten means that they are able to crush Gonzaga, I will be very happy with that. I am happy to rig the fucking system against Gonzaga. <laughs> it doesn't matter whatever it takes. I will uh, be glad about that. You know what? The only reason that Gonzaga is the program it is is because of a Big Ten school, right? What's that? Oh, Minnesota, right? Minnesota, Dan the Watson. academic scandal. Yeah that ha- allowed Gonzaga to win at Kiarita in the first round of the NCAA tournament, and they never looked back. Wait, really? I thought it was Dan Monson leaving, and then D- Mark Dan Monson, well, the reason he took the Minnesota job is because their, I forget who was the former head coach, was fired because of the said academic scandal. So he won the game against Minnesota, yeah. and then left for Minnesota? Yeah. Wow. It was like Draymond Green signing with the Thunder. <laughs> what? Well, because the joke is Kevin Durant signed with the Warriors <laughs> after the, the Thunder Warriors beat the Thunder. Okay. So if Draymond, the, the opposite of that would be Draymond Green signing with the Thunder. Uh, UW football, I'd love to explain the joke. Uh, ranked number 11 in the preseason coaches poll, second highest among five teams in what is currently the Pac-12 conference. <laughs> and what was once known as? <laughs> Scholars remember is the Pac-12 conference. Maybe they'll teach the class on that. <laughs> conference realignment. Uh, USC is number six, Utah at number 14, Oregon number 15, Oregon State number 18. Are all the schools on UW schedule this year? Obviously, I know USC is. I mean, Utah is the only question mark. I think they are. I think we have a pretty hard schedule. I think so, too, which would be not great. Yeah, those are back we're to back. We're fucking scared of Utah and we're going to go to the Big Ten. Well, <laughs> look. Uh, three consecutive weeks at USC versus Utah at Oregon State, all ranked opponents. So that's a, a yeah. Oregon stretch. State's not going to be in the Big Ten next year, so they can't be good. No way they can be good. All right, Seattle Seahawks news. As we wrap this up, hopefully before the two-hour mark, uh, the the big news was D. Eskridge, the NFL announced a six-game suspension for him to start the 2023 regular season for a violation of the league's personal conduct policy. That was a surprise to all of us, certainly, that there had been a violation of the personal conduct policy. A statement from his agency stated, In early February 2023, Dwayne was involved in an unfortunate incident with his child's mother, which resulted in his arrest and the filing of misdemeanor charges. Dwayne quickly took responsibility for his role in, the incident, in this incident. Dwayne entered into an agreement whereby the misdemeanor charges will be dismissed in 12 months when he completes domestic violence, moral recognition therapy. Dwayne has already enrolled in and has begun therapy. Dwayne has not been convicted of any crime. He entered into this agreement because it is in the best interest of his family. Dwayne deeply regrets any embarrassment this incident has caused his family, the Seahawks, and the NFL. Uh, Bob Condota subsequently reported that in May, Eskridge got a suspended sentence as part of a deal on fourth-degree misdemeanor assault charges. Uh, Pete Carroll's comment after the Seahawks played a uh, a scrimmage game basically at Lumen Field on Friday, quote, we have to be real about it that he's not going to be available, so we have to let the other guys have their chances and show where they fit in, and then we'll deal with Eskridge when he gets back. But in the meantime, it's an opportunity for other guys. He's been very effective, and he would be one of the guys that you would think would have a great chance of making the club going into the first game. So there is opportunities for other guys, and they're battling for it. So, I would not be terribly surprised if D. Eskridge is not on the roster to start the season. He has no guaranteed salary left on his contract. And certainly, historically, there is a sliding scale of tolerance for 
personal conduct violations, depending on your ability as a player, uh, ranging up to Deshaun Watson at the the high end. And Eskridge has not performed at a high level on the field thus far. So you, you combine those two factors and you start to wonder about his future. Uh, one of those players stepping up in the wide receiver competition is undrafted free agent Jake Bobo, who had a seven, seven catches for 76 yards in a touchdown in the mock game at Lumen Field. Uh, Cody Thompson also had four catches for 54 yards with Derek Young and Tyler Lockett sitting out due to injury. Eskridge had three catches for 40 yards. Seahawks' running game was largely ineffective, but Ken Walker III and Jack Charbonnet did not play in the scrimmage. Kenny McIntosh left with a knee sprain, won't require surgery. Sounds like it's a moderate, but not a severe knee sprain for him. Uh, good day for Geno Smith, who was 10 of 15 for 171 yards. Drew Locke went 16 of 22 for 178 yards, so it's certainly a strong performance for him as the, the number two quarterback as well. Uh, Reek Woolen is off the pup list, not a full participant in practice yet, so we certainly don't expect him to see him this Thursday as the Seahawks open their preseason at home against the Minnesota Vikings in a game you will attend. I sure will. Of, of all the games that you'll attend this week, this will be one of them. I uh, was reminded of the preseason game that I attended last year, evidently against the Chicago Bears. <laughs> and... Uh, I was also reminded how little preseason matters. I guess maybe maybe we've done research that preseason results actually do matter a little bit. Historically, they did. I, I mean, that was during a period of time where starters played to some degree. Yeah, four preseason games. We we don't have much evidence in the three preseason game era. Exactly. And the like extreme resting starters era. Yes. The post-Sean McVay era. So, but that one was, I. it's such a blur, that game. And I'm sure that this one will be as well. I will be there. It'll feel like a football game, but it won't be a football game. But his baby is Fantasy Genius's first NFL game, so that, that's going to be a big moment. He got up and danced when I told him that he was going. Wow. I know. And if somebody tells me that I'm going to an NFL game, I'm just like, oh, God. <laughs> so old and jaded. That's... I'm like, they should be playing this game in the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> in the kingdom. Be... There should be a ramp, and there should be 6,000 people there. I should oh. be able to sit in any seat I want and have direct conversations with the players. I, I will say, uh, I don't know how many seats we... Did you, you came to the one Seahawks game in the kingdom that the I Bengals. attended, right? Yeah, yeah. by the Bengals. Inside linebackers, Brian Simmons. That team was awesome. All I remember is Amon Green coming in on third down and getting stopped short on a pitch. That's that's my defining memory of that game. Home on Green was awesome. Uh, a game they lost. The Seahawks lost at home during a year where they won the AFC West and advanced to the playoffs in Mike Holmgren's first year as head coach. Uh, the last year of the Kingdom, uh, there were a bit more than six thousand. I know, no, they're. I think those games actually were quite full. But you know, the you are going to get to see those jerseys this season. So you got I can't that freaking wait, which is nice. That's that's when football was football. I gotta say, I've been seeing people walking around wearing the DK jerseys, like at Seafarer and at the Storm game today. They look pretty good. You're kind of in. It's like the Mariners ones. The more that you see them, you dislike them. <laughs> that's my my only vibe. You, only you. Only me the, on the City well, Connect jerseys. I that is definitely not only me. You're most prominent. Uh, but the more that you see the Seahawks throwbacks, you're like, oh hell yeah. Seeing the DK Metcalf jersey I, in particular in that, I don't know. Just Bobby Wagner is the best one to me. Well, I haven't seen that we worn around, so 
UW TBD. in the Big Ten needs to bring back the half jerseys. <laughs> They're in the Big Ten. You have to go back to an era when UW actually played the Big Ten kind of often in the Rose Bowl. It's half jersey time. Bring it back. Don't look now. Because the half jerseys are not back yet. On that note, thanks for listening. Thanks.